Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 7th of the 8th. Michael, how have you been since last we spoke? I'm starting to lose faith in the Irish mirror, Gary, and our, and our my telephone, or the meteorologist. I've been promised continually. The day after tomorrow is going to be hot. Well, no, hot, 23 degrees or something, because of this great splurge of air that's coming up from North Africa and it's going to bake us all. And yet the weather continues to be far horrible and miserable. You know, it starts to make you start to, you start to lose confidence in the science. And that's a very bad thing when we lose confidence in the science. Other than that, I'm fine. So, moving on from the most trivial of possible complaints to a story we last week said was uh, the largest in the world, although it shouldn't be the release of the body cam footage of George Floyd. We're not going to touch on it here because we talked about it in the last episode, I think, in a fair bit of detail. Uh, Personally, I think the release of the body footage uh, shows that a lot of what we were told about the interaction by media was incorrect and that George Floyd largely died because of George Floyd and there doesn't seem to be any racial motivation. What I do want to mention is in the last episode we were saying that Irish media have reported every facet of this trial, of, of this case in excruciating detail down to the fact one of the police officers involved uh, is being looked at for tax evasion. I mean, the Irish Examiner published articles telling you what you can do about the George Floyd killing in <laughs> Ireland while pointing out that being in Ireland there wasn't a lot that you would think you could do. Not a RTE, the Journal, the Examiner, the Times, and the Independent. None of them have reported on the release of that body cam footage. Not a single one of them. Really? Now, nobody. Nobody. That's they might think, okay, well, maybe story. it's an absolutely. It's, it's it's. I mean, it led to the BLM movement. It led to the riots we're still seeing. Well, it started with protests, and it led to the riots we're still seeing all across America. It led to the creation of places like the Chaz. It is a massive story, and there is absolutely no chance that its publication in Irish media could bias the trial, so there's no reason for them not to do it. But they haven't done it. And so, um, I will include a link to the grip story I wrote on the release of the footage in the in the notes of this episode, if you want to click on that. I, I have the video embedded into it, but there are... There's 18 minutes of video, and if you've been following this case, just absolutely watch it, because I think it changes very much our understanding of what happened here. But we were saying before they haven't published it. Now we've given them a couple of days. It's news. You want to be on top of it quickly. And uh, they just they just haven't touched it. Almost like they uh, have decided not to report it. Not that we would suggest such a thing. Because if they decided not to report one of the largest stories in the world because of its narrative uh, it's damage to a narrative. What else wouldn't they publish? Obviously, or what would they publish? Obviously, we we were confident that the, that that's not going on here because you know we have some of the best. Absolutely, our media does not have any sort of ideological line that they would push. No, no, thank God. But just to contextualize it, you say, well, why is this a big story? Well, the statues outside the Shelburne, right? That was a big story, was it not? That was. It shouldn't have been, but it was. Yeah, it was a massive story. That poor. Poor county councillor in Mead who wanted to get rid of Steinbeck. That became a big story. Not what wasn't a big story, but we we talked about it anyway. But he still made it onto the RTE news. 
website with the article by two sociologists saying that we should be we should be moving towards a, a criminal justice system which didn't have any punishment in well, it. Well, no, 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 they didn't say that, Michael. No, no, that's true. That's true. But they said, "Can you imagine? Can you imagine?" Oh, yeah, yeah. John Lennon of academia. Do you know what, Gary? And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm just telling you as a fact. If I had finished an essay to Matt O'Donnell, professor of philosophy, on when in my youth, with a, a phrase like "Can you imagine?" I would have been given a negative mark. I would have had to work. I would have had to get stupendous marks for every other essay I'd done for the next two years to try and recover from the negative that he would have given me. He would have said, okay, you're now working off minus 50. Let's see if you can get a degree. Times change. We are more sensitive. We are more aware of our feelings. We are more aware of the importance to allow people to be creative and imaginative. So we write sentences like that. Anyway, we had people demonstrating in their thousands in Dublin in the middle of the pandemic, a fact which nobody commented in government, etc. My point is, there's massive shit going on in Ireland, which was on the basis of the re- of what had, had happened in the United States. The League of Ireland, Gary, there's a thing called the League of Ireland, which is not, I know what you think, which is the hurling and foot getting. Oh, they've case. decided to take a knee in honour of, uh, of George Floyd, haven't they? Yeah, they're taking a knee. God, like... Let's get together all the people who care about the League of Ireland taking an E and get them into the back of Foley's and give them all a drink. Israel Falau, our old friend from Australia, now playing rugby with the Catalan Dragons, has refused to take an E and that has become news. All this is news because this man, George Floyd, God love him, Lord have mercy, poor man died in what were undoubtedly distressing circumstances. And a horrible thing to see. I mean, the fact that there's something rather horrible and purient and invasive about the act of watching this. But this body cam comes out <coughs> and seems to materially affect by the context by the context in which things occur, materially affect our understanding of everything that's gone on. And it's bizarre. I mean, we're always kind of given out about this. How many of our stories, Gary, are meta? Stories, news stories about what is in the news and what isn't in the news. There's no baseball like insider <coughs> baseball. Yeah, this is inside Hurland, but God, this case really, this is genuinely a case of why? What's going on, lads? Did you not notice it? Is the Daily Mail too far away? The Daily Mail is the, um, by popularity, the largest news entity in existence. I find that incredible. I genuinely find that fascinating. I... Every now and then I'll read one of their articles and they, they don't ever seem to end. No, no, they, they go get on, to a certain scroll, point and, and then they're it's just, I mean, I assume there's some SEO reason for that, but they are incredibly popular. I think they have. And I would imagine they paid mucho money for those tapes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, like you'd be putting the gold bathroom in. <laughs> because they recognize it's a massive story. And now that they've reported it, the American media who had been banned from distributing the tapes are reporting it. And the mainstream American media is mostly ignoring it. But, I mean, I think the American conservative have written about it, and they have been savage. Ben Shapiro has been doing it. 
Um, yeah, it kind of moved the narrative from racial policing to, well, meth is a hell of a drug. And not just meth, maybe. No, well, definitely not just meth. But anyway, on, on the idea of victims, I wanted to, to talk about something. And this is going to, I'm going to, for, I'm going to just put right up front, this is going to seem like a really small complaint. Possibly just what about her, but I, I promise you there is a point. A report came out, a long, long awaited report, called the Review of Protections for Vulnerable Witnesses in the Investigation and Prosecution of Sexual Offences. And it's basically a review of the law involving how witnesses are treated in um, sexual, in the trials of sexual offences. And there's there's a, there's a lot of stuff in it. I'm still, I to be honest, I haven't finished the entire report yet. It's 135 pages long and it only came out early. But here's the thing about it, Michael. I, I did a quick little word check in it. The word victim appears 713 times in this report. The word, or the phrase, alleged victim appears twice. And both of those times, it's quoting something else that's happened. Yeah. And you go through it, and it's, it's talking about how you need to, we need to protect the rights of victims, and we need to safeguard those, and we need to provide anonymity for victims, and to ensure that questioning of victims does not re-victimize them. And that... Training needs to be provided for legal personnel in how to deal with victims, so judges and barristers and, and all of that. And here's here's the thing, though. The report, by saying that there is a victim, would seem to me to be sort of assuming the guilt of the accused. And I, I searched for a section that says... When we say victim, it's just a shorthand because, you know, lawyers love shorthand, obviously. And maybe they ran a word count and it was too high, so they just got rid of all the alleged. Because, you know, that's the, that would be the first thing you would take out. It, it worries me that you would write a report like this and you'd constantly talk about the victim and giving these things to the victim. When it's not the... It's not the job of this report to determine if there is a victim. It's the job of a jury. There may be no victim. So if you're, particularly when it's talking about educating legal personnel, if they're, if they're going to judges and saying, well, these are the things you have to put in place for victims, you're telling a judge that there is a victim. And yeah. that to me seems, seems like that could introduce bias into a case. I would say that I... We can imagine the positive influence, the or the the pod, the positive impulse that is driving this approach, that they want to try and ensure that in those cases where you have women who have, not just women but principally women, who have been the victims of a sexual assault or rape, that that experience can be a horrific one, uh, traumatizing, uh, scarring experience that to the extent that it is possible, they want to try and minimize the chance that that experience 
be compounded or amplified by going by something that they experience in the criminal justice system. They want to try and make sure that women are more likely to look at the system and to consider that it's a worthwhile place to go to seek justice. I I I I understand that, but I do share your concern. I think there's a phrase in it, Gary, where the minister says she wants to try and make the the system more victim centered. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Now I understand again where she's coming from. I understand the impulse there, but a criminal trial surely should be, in its purest expression, a truth discovery process. It's about the if you want to make it about something, you make it about the truth, not about one of the participants. One of the sections of this report is uh, one of the topics it looks at is the anonymity of victims and defendants. That's the phrase of it. If there's a victim, a crime was committed. And that crime was presumably committed by the defendant, because why else would he be there? It's just... So there there is a lot in this report that's worth kind of considering as a potentially positive step, although there's stuff in it that goes close to rape shield laws. Uh, there's not in in Ireland. There's not a ban on asking about a um, a complainant's more accurately sexual history if it's of relevance. And people complainers have been complaining for years about that, saying that it's never relevant. And We've seen what happens. There's things called rape shield laws. Yeah. You see them in America, where basically you are totally banned from talking about a victim's previous sexual history. But we've seen cases in America where people have been accused of rape by people who have lodged multiple claims of rape against other people, which have been shown to be false. And rape shield laws have stopped them from bringing that up in court, which is... I think a bit a travesty. Well, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a material fact that the, you'd imagine the jury should be allowed to consider. That's the thing. Leave it to a jury. If the jury thinks that you're just bringing up things to discredit a woman or to make her look bad based on things that should not impact on one's view of her, a jury is perfectly within its rights to actually think less of the defendant. No, it is the case that the, as the, the report doesn't recommend going down it does not it doesn't recommend uh full rape shield laws but the the existing system limits that to a degree because you need to actually request a particular of a judge and they want those requests to be put in i believe at a pre uh, preliminary hearing and also they, there's a suggestion and i don't know this might be an maybe a good idea that specifically for the portion of the trial if the defense is going to shall we say launch an attack on the uh, the alleged victim, the complainant, based on their sexual history or their their private life, their personal life, that for that component of the trial, that the 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 counsel be provided for the for the person for the the witness in that case to provide extra support. And I, I I'm not I'm not sure off the top of my head why that wouldn't be provided by the state prosecuting. Uh, lawyers but maybe if uh, it's necessary then that could be a useful extra tool for the uh, to mitigate the amplification of 
the stress experienced and another just something else that might encourage people to come forward uh, and to pursue justice through the trial system Wait, if if there is a perception i think that we're told there is a perception that uh, it can be too difficult and the chances of getting a the chance of getting a verdict but there is the problem isn't it there's the perception is that the the um, there are not enough guilty verdicts if you talk to people around this this is one thing that you get to ultimately that's the point they're simply the the perception is they don't get enough guilty verdicts and the problem with that is if you're talking about the system is well what is the correct number very hard to know what a correct number is in this kind of situation and what you do to a system and how you compromise the rights of other people within this system in order to achieve something which is you have no basis no apparent basis in 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 empirical fact to say that this is correct as opposed to some other number is correct so this is uh what how will this be progressed uh i would imagine quite rapidly this this report was originally brought about under charlie uh flanagan not hockey although that could happen I'm sure there's some review board somewhere still working diligently away for a good payment. Well, he was Minister for Justice. Um, I would imagine they will move to put these in fairly rapidly. A lot of the stuff here can be done without legislative changes from what I've seen. And to be honest, it, if you're putting forward changes to rape legislation or the sexual offences legislation, I don't see most people... Most people, even if they had an issue with this, are not going to publicly say they have an issue with this because then you're the person speaking against victims of sexual assault. And that's just not a conversation you're going to want to have or a conversation that you will win if they have. Yeah. You are a bad person. And if you are speaking against the victims, actually, of sexual assault, then you... Why? <laughs> I th- I suppose we would carry- we'd prefer to characterise this discussion rather as not a against victims but rather to remember no matter how the story is characterized otherwise that if you are arrested and charged with a crime you are and you are you are an individual citizen and not many people are harvey weinstein not many people are are billionaires with vast resources to hire tribes of lawyers most people will end up in a situation where Either the, they have to they use the lawyer which is provided for them by the state or they get whoever they can afford by mortgaging the house. And the power of the state is arrayed against them. It's not an equal balance. It's not I think we shouldn't you know, leave this with the notion that in in this case are is radically different to any other criminal case where somehow the accused is the more powerful person in this process that they have all the power they have, and it has to be rectified. If you're the accused in a courtroom in Ireland, you are still the person faced against the the power and the authority and the resources of the state. So the power the power differential is is still always and will always be in, 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 in favour of the state. And that's why you have to give protections to citizens, whatever it is they're charged with. Or else we just get rid of the whole process and say just listen if he looks guilty shoot him 
There is also the, the concern here that if you take steps that you think will help, you'll actually take steps that will hurt. So, for instance, in certain American states, they put in place allowances that com- people who had complained of rape or serious sexual assault wouldn't have to accuse, or wouldn't have to face the person they had accused in trial because they said this would be traumatic to them, and they introduced video evidence. And then it turned out that juries don't trust video evidence as much as they trust in-person testimony. Yes, and the problem with that is you can tell juries all that you like, that they shouldn't be like that. But that's, since these things are, or shall we say, pre-conscious decisions, these are not things that we make, it's not that you sit down and think, oh, he's on telly, I don't trust him as much. This is just something that, this no, is how we react. You lessen the, the emotional impact and the empathy because they are, they're effectively on TV. So you can take steps like that. Also, things like summary of recommendations. All judges presiding over criminal trials for sexual offences should have specialist training. Depending on what that training consists of, I think you could fairly easily lay the groundwork for future appeals against convictions. Because if they can show that you biased the uh, the application of justice in some way, you're going to end up in a situation where you get, you're okay for 15 years. And then just a swathe. Someone gets through an appeal and a swathe of cases are just overturned. Yeah. Uh, you queered the pitch. It, it may be naive of one, but I think something that might be more useful if you want to go down that way is to provide the guards with better resources, with more forensic scientists, with more and better uh, resources better technical resources on site and off well that would that would seem to be the way to do it because if you want to yeah if you want to train the guards in dealing with sexual assaults and serious sexual matters well guards are just involved in the evidence generation and if they put you know if you put more systems in place for better evidence generation and better systems to deal with those uh, making a complaint of serious sexual assault at that point, well, then the trial can continue as it was, and there's you don't need to do anything to that. You don't need to bias that in any way. Oh, so or do anything which could inadvertently bias that in any way. You train them and give them the resources to be better gatherers of evidence to create stronger cases and make it more likely to, to secure convictions. And also train them. And although I'm to, I, I have heard and I've been from, from a number of people that, in, that the guards can be excellent when dealing with victims. You know, the individual guards that work in this area can be very careful, very sensitive, and very helpful. You know, that uh, I've heard several people were really surprised at how well the the people involved in, in a number of cases were treated. That, the, but that can be that kind of training can be can always be can always be better and it can be done on a wider basis so i think that if if your real if your real concern is uh, getting justice obviously you want to try and make sure that the system is works as well as it can for all those involved and you don't want to amplify the experience again but if you want to get justice well then look at the best ways of securing convictions 
And I think the more likely you are to secure eviction, that will be one of the best ways of incentivizing people to come forward. If they think that there's a real chance at the end of the day that the person who's perpetrated this terrible act against them will actually suffer consequences, I think that actually it will provide a really good incentive for them to come forward. Yeah, I, I, th- I, th- yeah, I think obviously the report does have some interesting recommendations. I'm not saying that the report is in any way bad because I haven't finished reading it. But I just, sentences, like, um, in considering improvements that might be made to the current law and practice and in formulating our recommendations, we made every effort to avoid conflict between the rights of accused persons on the one hand and those of victims on the other. If that is the, if that is the framework, that just makes me slightly nervous. Yeah. Um, because they could easily bollocks this without meaning to. Now... I mean, the people involved are highly accredited in their field, far more highly accredited than I am. So I that, may be that, entirely that high, wrong. That highly accredited, really? Like, yes, in fact, Michael, did you know that Tom O'Malley has not just one first-class honours degree, but three? Wow. Yeah, on his CV, uh, well, not on his... I was reading a profile of him, and they were very keen to mention that, and then they sort of also off-handedly mentioned that he was a fellow at Yale. <laughs> I'm like, I, that is impressive I, I think at that point you no longer have to talk it's, it would be like saying he also did very well in the leaving set yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think the Yale thing covers him I think we, we're okay on that he's credentialed we had I remember talking to a, 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 a professor of psychiatry who was slightly annoying me it, it, to me anyway at the time it fed, the guts are 10 years younger than me and he's he had obviously he had a doctor's he well not obviously no he was a he had a doc, he was a medical doctor he also had a doctorate in psychology I think he had a doctorate in philosophy a master's a doctorate in history a master's in Buddhist studies he published between one and he had been publishing between one and two books a year for the previous ten or fifteen years and I looked at his CV and I said to him, God your CV's on really and he just smiled and said yes it's been busy. And you see, that's the secret, Gary. Keep busy. And you'll get all these, you'll, and you'll get your, uh, you get three or four doctorates. Speaking of highly credentialed people, Michael, did you read the article on uh, RTE recently? It's, uh, it was called Our Children Going Out of Fashion. Ha! It was written by Mary Corcoran, of, uh, Professor of Sociology at Maynooth University. Oh! Yeah, Dad, this is a doozy. Can you put a link up? Uh, put a link. I, I will I will put a link people up. People deserve this. to read this. Oh, by the way, it's, it's, this was on the RT website. So presumably these doesn't these comments do not reflect the opinions of RTE. Oh no, no, obviously not. Because that's important. Everybody should know that nothing that appears on the news page of the RTE website is in any way reflective of the opinions of people within RTE. But it's beautiful because it's the the subheading is low birth rates have created major new challenges for countries around the world, and it is fantastic. It um, it has it 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 just touches on everything. I'll give you a couple of lines from it. More than two hundred years ago, the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus hypothesized that when population grows exponentially, it rapidly outpaces our capacity for food production and depletes our resources. Malthus envisioned catastrophe 
for both humankind and the planet. But although that theory was popular well into the 20th century, <laughs> recent demographic projections roundly refute this. Pew Research Center analysis of UN data demonstrates a flattening of the world population curve. So, are you now, saying that there's evidence in that Malthus might have been wrong? Now, Malthus, for those who don't know, was a very famous figure. And yes, that he did, that is what he said. His concern, what he actually did was he looked at population growth versus agricultural output. He's, I can never get the figures that, right. He said that population grows geometrically, but food production grows arithmetically. Yeah, from that basically said that if the population, uh, with those population projections, eventually, uh, it's, well, it wouldn't have been good. There would have been mass death, starvation, wars, um, much, much lower carbon footprint. Much lower carbon footprint. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. And Malthus was proved wrong, not by recent Pew Research Center data, but largely through the development of fertilizer. Oh, new fertilizers. fertilizers, crop rotations, and new kinds of crops, and bringing more land into use. You know, so Malthus was wrong very soon after Malthus published the paper. I mean, it wasn't a long time before people were pretty well. No, neo, what you could call neo-Malthusians crop up every so often. Do you remember, it's not exactly to the point, but do you remember there was a, a guy who's a futurologist who still is dragged out to give his opinion on things? was a very famous bet between two people who I cannot remember the names of either of them now. And I used to. It was a bet about the future costs of 10 basic commodities. Because one guy was basically a neo-Malthusian. He said, we're running out of all these, these scarce resources. We're not finding replacements. We're going to run out of them. It's going to be an absolute nightmare. We're all going to die and the other guy, nah, it'll be grand, it'll be fine. And they had a bet that in 10 years' time, the he said, listen, in 10 years' time, the the, the price of a, a basket of 10 commodities, I say commodities, I mean things like, say, oil, copper, tungsten, silver, whatever it was, uh, tin, maybe. The ten commodities, the price will ha will in real terms, will be less. He was kind of wrong in that, uh, if my memory serves, nine out of ten of them were cheaper, in absolute terms, and one was, dear, just in real terms. In real terms meaning when you adjust for inflation. So, the neo Malthusians keep coming, and we live in an age, of green neo Malthusians who keep telling us that we're all going to die unless. We do, this, and that is sort of the new form of uh, Malthusian. If you saw the recent Marvel film, Avengers Infinity War, the villain Thanos is some type of Neo-Malthusian. Or if you've ever heard the phrase surplus population, probably ran into some Malthusians. But no, it was not recent demographic no, projections that showed Malthusian. How did she feel about governments wanting to encourage local people to have babies rather than to well you see what she says is that um one solution to this to this problem has been to promote immigration which helps to bolster the numbers um 
Fenchy says, a more controversial a more controversial solution, and one in line with an anti-immigration stance, is to pursue policies that promote higher birth rates among the native population. Now, Michael, that could be anything from you know, tax breaks for people who have more children. I mean, the Hungarian deal, where if you have a certain amount of children, you don't have to pay income tax. That's a thing. Uh, you, you, you have social pushes like you see in Turkey, where... The government pretty much just tells people to have more children. But this is what she says about that, Michael. She says, History teaches us that pro-natalist policies often have the effect of weaponizing childbearing for political ends. After World War I saw millions of lives lost, many European countries developed pro-natalist policies to bolster population. In the 1930s, Stalin reversed liberal birth control and abortion rights in favor of promoting multiple births. A Nazi Germany deployed pro-natalism <laughs> as part of its heinous aim to create a racially pure super race in Europe. So she's getting, she's getting the big guns out there, Gary. So she's not saying Stalin pro-natalist policies are wrong. She's just saying that, well, do you know who liked them? Both Stalin and you know, Hitler. She could have thrown in Mussolini and the, and the fascists there as well if she'd wanted to. This is true. Yes, indeed. Apparently, the to ask the question why are our people not having babies anymore is it because we the government have actually made it too expensive for them to have babies and should do something about that That, (laughs) sorry that makes you in the words of twitter literally worse than Hitler. (laughs) oh that's good stuff that is good stuff i mean she doesn't this is the same thing as the last article on should the police be defunded At no point does she say you're in, you know, you're worse than Hitler or Stalin. She just puts them there and then says, well, they agreed with you. So, and then you sort of move around that. You never, if you were to come back and say, with comparing pronatalist people to Hitler, she would say, well, no, I didn't do that. I just said that they had the same policies. I made no accusation. Which is perfectly correct. Causality is not causation. Correlation is not causation, and all that kind of stuff. both Hitler and Stalin were very fond of roads. Yeah. And dogs. And dogs. And shooting Jews. That's true, actually. Stalin, not a great believer in Jews. Yeah. Although that one came back to bite him in the yeah. ass. When there were no more doctors left. When there were no more Jewish doctors left. And he was having a stroke. Or poisoned. Or both. Or both, yeah. Yeah, it was, that was a tough old one for Stalin. I lo- he's... Oh, I know. You really do feel for him at that point, don't you? <laughs> you do. You do. The old, you're, you're, the old human empathy coming out for the... Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the warm milk of empathy just washes over you at the thought of Stalin dying in his bed. Or on the floor. In his own pee. Hopefully. Angela Merkel once commented... I, I, I sometimes think that Angela had these little moments... Where she was thinking things in her head and then she realised she was saying them out loud and real and thought, oh God, I wish I hadn't said that. One time, she was, in the context of um, Gastarbeiten, you know, f- the uh, workers that had come in from abroad after the Second World War to rebuild the German economy, they came in large numbers from Portugal and Italy at the beginning and then laterally from Turkey. And Angela said, you know, we, we never thought they'd stay. We thought they'd all go home, make a few quid and go home. 
we were all we we could get over it when they all stayed, which you know, coming from the world's most best planned and most organized and best governed countries, uh, barring obviously Luxembourg. It's a kind of a worry that you know it's like oh look at that they're not going. And the bizarre thing, as people have said, is that nobody at any stage, whether it was in Germany or France or Italy, wherever, nobody ever said, why aren't people having babies anymore? Is that because we have? Because, and that was probably, if you ask people, the reason was they, everything had, the government since had consistently made it more and more expensive. I actually don't think that's the No, case. I don't think it's the case either, but... This is the this is the case that is made by politicians who are latest. No, there is something to it, Gary. There is something to it. I I think no, I, I think there's absolutely I think something there, to one it. One of the big costs there are two things. Uh which one is connected and one is not. I think the cost of housing has continually increased across Europe since in the Second World War as a proportion of income. Now the other part is you have also the absorption of women into the workforce. And that's completely changed the the dynamics of having children. So because that introduced then you now you're getting into the area of childcare, and with the diffusion of the mobility of families, the distance the families now are less far less likely to live near aunts or cousins or grandparents than they once were. So you're you're now looking at the professionalisation of childcare. I, I I think that's there's obviously I think all of those things come into it. I actually think the, the root cause is slightly different. I think the root cause is contraception. And I don't mean that in some yeah, yeah, yeah. overtly no, religious no, no, no. way. What I think is that for most of human history, uh, pregnancy was not a choice as such. Pregnancy just happened. Pre- yeah, and for and maybe, now yeah, it is a choice. Yeah. And there is always a reason not to make such a monumentous decision. And so one of those weird things where if you give people a choice, sometimes they actually, they don't achieve what they want to achieve. Which when you look at surveys of professional women in Europe, a lot of them say they want more children than they have. And I think largely that is because it is now a choice. And it's a very difficult choice to make and there will never be a perfect opportunity for it. Whereas before, it just, if it happened, it happened. There was also, I mean, some social scientists who said that you have a, you teach men for a very long time that the absolute worst thing that can happen as a result of sexual congress is, the, is pregnancy. That's the disaster. Until you get married. And after you get married, well, then it's great stuff. Well, you know, if you teach men that, you know, if you can have sex you can, and, and you can get away with not having a baby, that's a great thing. And then you get married and you give them a methodology to continue having it. Well, then that might, that might impact on us as well. I think that material, well, it's trade-offs, I suppose, as well. I had I had a conversation with a student of mine who was successful, very successful. They had, he, both, he and his wife worked. They were both professionals. And they had one child. And they were in their mid-30s. And I asked, I said, would you like more children? He said, oh, we'd love more children. I'd love my daughter to have a have a have a, a a sister or a brother or, or or brothers but you know we just can't afford it it's just too expensive and we walked out of the school it was a sunday morning saturday morning he was his wife picked him up in their brand new or her brand new bmw 
where they drove to the airport where they got on an airplane and flew to Mauritius where they were having a three weeks holiday. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have their BMW or go to Mauritius for three weeks. If that's what you want, good luck, God bless. But it's kind of straining the meaning of a can't afford. No, I mean, I, I know people, and for most of human history, people were not terribly wealthy. So this whole sort of, I can't afford children, I think in most cases people could afford children. I know people who have seven or eight children on in one income families, but the income is decent, but not incredible. And they're able to afford it. Yes, they have to give up a lot of stuff and they have to be careful, but it can be done. So I don't, I think people convince themselves they can't afford it more than they actually can afford it. I think the most it. interesting thing about all of this discussion, lots of stuff, all good stuff, all good fun, is it's an example of the fact that we are actually, we are not the prisoners of our evolutionary instincts. The most basic we we hear the most basic instinct we have as animals is to reproduce the species and yet we can modify that instinct might be an interesting conversation to have with someone we should see if we can reach out to anyone who's anyway yes issue. moving on but yes but moving on from that covid, COVID yeah, just, it's, not a, I don't, it's not a big thing gary but it's just have you noticed or is it just me Okay, just to contextualize my, my small complaint or my small observation is this. When we started this whole thing back in the spring and the great debate about how it should be approached, the big thing was the suppression of the curve, right? And we want to, we want to flatten the curve. We want to flatten the curve because the big concern was hospitals and particularly ICUs would be overwhelmed the health service would collapse and we would be looking at thousands and thousands of people dying right phase one two three four that whole thing was worked out to the extent that it was ever worked out on the basis that we would flatten the curve manage the spread control the thing and then start to gradually open up it was never the plan that we would go for total suppression. You can't go for total well, suppression. You could. But, well, I want to get back to that. I want to get back. Hold on. I, it was never the plan. And I can remember when, uh, maybe a month and a half, couple of months ago, where, yeah, August, September, June. Do you remember New Zealand had achieved what looked like, or the process of achieving what looked like suppression? And a couple of people started to pop up on the radio here saying, we need to go for suppression. And at that time, the notion of suppression was being poo-pooed. Poo-pooed, Gary, it was. Poo-pooed quite viciously. I can't quite see the difference between what's going, what appears to be the policy now and a policy of suppression. We are down... Okay... It, we have, at the moment, five confirmed cases in the ICU. In the last 24 hours, there have been no admissions to ICU. There have been one discharge. There are 11 cases in hospital in the country, in total. 
There have been no admissions to hospital and there have been no discharges from hospital. Now, it seems to me that we have gone away from a fear that this was a disease which was going to affect large numbers of vulnerable people, that people would get very ill and people would die. And we're now simply afraid of any kind, any new outbreak. Now, obviously, it's not good news when we're looking at new outbreaks. The positive rate, is that the R rate, the positive rate? The positive rate in the, in the last two days, last seven days is 1.4. And the, if you're going for suppression, the idea eventually is you keep it under one and it would eventually die out. But it was also said that the R rate really only, when you're looking at localised cluster outbreaks, that the R rate becomes distorted. Now, it seems to me that in the last while, what we've been looking at, we've been looking at outbreaks in direct provision centres, in meat factories, and in certain and certain sections of the community. But the actual numbers of unidentified community transmission are still very, very small. And the actual odds in most of the country of getting this are still terribly, terribly small. We've made a decision... It's, we have made the, the government has made a decision not to open the pubs. Pubs aren't going to open, and they may not open again at all this year, according to the minister uh, to Tonishta, which I think will probably make the decision for quite a number of those pubs that they won't open again full stop. That'll be the end of the road for them. But we're ploughing ahead confidently with schools. I don't. I don't get the coherence of the policy here. We're we're we're, op- we're closing the pubs because there is no coherence to the policy. There's been no coherence to the policy for months. I mean, look at the pub opening thing. You can open if you get a nine euro meal. Well, why is that being done? Well, because we want to lower the amount of people in pubs. Well, why not just restrict the amount of people in pubs? No, this is easier. How is it easier? I... It's just, it, there are arbitrary targets being set that. Don't seem to have any a poli- any relationship. One politician to each told other. me the reason he had to have food was because uh, they didn't want people standing up in pubs. Well, then just say you can reopen, but you have to seat. Well, people. yeah, tell people to sit down. Who in wants fact, to stand in a pub? Anyway? By introducing food to the entire thing, if their only objective was to seat people, they probably increased transmission risks. Because now you need to have kitchen staff, you need to have cutlery, you need to have that constant movement yeah. of that. Whereas you just wanted people to sit. Just fucking tell people to sit. Uh, is there, what is the effective difference between the current policy and the policy of suppression at the moment? Uh, at the, they, they, they are effectively the same policy. But the problem they have is that until a vaccine is both available and readily available, which are two very different things... And effective, mm. which is another condition, it is impossible to suppress because as long as there is international travel, it will continue to move. And we're not going to ban international travel because the Italians would feel that bad would be about hurtful that. and insensitive. That and would maybe be racist. To not just Italians, maybe to other probably people. Probably racist. Probably racist to every what isn't these days. So suppression doesn't seem possible. And also, if we are going to. We are now reaching a point where 
many businesses are not going to reopen. It's just, it's not going to happen. And this, people are talking about that we're going to have this V-shaped recovery. And all I can think is that it is way easier to shut a business than it is to open a business. And sure, let's say we, we start reopening parts of the economy and there's demand there. It's going to take time for businesses to actually set themselves up. So who is going to employ people? Yeah, one of the problems is it 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 is increasingly perceived by a lot of people. I think as a binary choice, it's between saving lives and not saving lives, and I think that there is a misunderstanding of lost opportunities and opportunity costs here. That. The economic costs and the social costs of maintaining where we're at is going to kill people. We know that. I mean, we know if you talk to any doctor, we, 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 we imagine, you know, our hospitals overwhelmed with this incredible, uh, with this pandemic. Well, well, I just read you the figures. There are 11 people in hospital as we speak. But I've talked to doctors over the last few months and said they've never been less busy. People are not going to hospital. Cancer patients are not getting treatment. They're not getting appointments. People who have heart and heart, heart attacks and strokes are not going to hospital because they don't want to because they're afraid to go to hospital. There are all sorts of health, other health issues which are not being addressed. Where timing is going, we know time is a huge issue in many health many health conditions and an early intervention can be enormously beneficial but later but that those early interventions are being missed opportunities are being missed also just the economic cost we know that if you make people poorer you give them you're going to have an impact on not just quality of life but health outcomes and the their ex- life expectation so it's not a simple binary thing but people i think okay i'll ask you if we just if the government announced tomorrow everything is grand listen lads you're all grown up we we we, we trust you to behave like adults to use your masks in the correct places to sanitize your hands to keep clean all that and to maintain social distancing but we're getting rid of all the rules what percentage of people do you think would be happy to go out and reintegrate i mean i know it's a ridiculous question how could you know but but just a guesstimate off the top of your head i have absolutely no idea i'm Michael. saying that because i i'm fairly sure that put it this way but you're not even without putting a number on it i think a substantial number of people would not I think a substantial number of people are so frightened, so thoroughly frightened by this, that they're not going anywhere. And they won't be going anywhere until, as you see, the vaccine is out and they are vaccinated. Or we have just announced that the thing is gone, one or the other. (laughs) Uh, Dictionary.com just sent out a tweet you might find amusing, Michael. It, uh, it, they have an article called What Does Turf Stand For? And the tweet is just Beware the Turf. <laughs> this is the dictionary. This is the dictionary. 
This is the dictionary. We live in wonderful times. We live in... Oh, it's going to be wonderful looking back on it. Not all of us will be shot. Not all of us will be shot. But the important thing is that there are people that will be able to record our stories and to reflect them back to us so that we understand them in a way that we wouldn't, we otherwise wouldn't have done. People who will challenge us and fascinate us and enchant us, Gary. You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about artists, Gary. Artists. Because they are the real heroes, Michael. Well, they're always the real heroes, Gary. Are we doing enough, Gary, to save the art? Are you doing enough to save the arts from the COVID crisis? I actually do spend money on the arts, Michael. Do you? I do. Tell me about that, he said, not at all sceptically. Oh, I occasionally commission art pieces for other things I do. Art pieces? Yes, yeah, I, 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 uh, from little pieces of work I do, or I'm getting done, I will often commission artists for them, but they tend to be more graphic artists. But on actual portraiture art, I actually do get pieces of that commissioned occasionally as well. There you go. For tabletop gaming. Tabletop gaming? For tabletop gaming. Or, uh, I, I play Pathfinder, Michael, which is like D&D, but has more numbers and so is less popular, But although it's a far superior system. But as part of that, you need, occasionally you want graphics and things, so I'll occasionally pay artists to produce maps for me or portraiture of particular characters. So I just want, <laughs> sorry, I'm just reading them here and I'm enjoying it. Uh, the... the uh... The COVID crisis has brought the arts sector to its knees, Gary, despite keeping us entertained throughout the lockdown. Is this from the same people who complain, who were talking about strictly come dancing and the need to protect Irish culture? It could well be. I don't know. Anyway, now the launch of the national campaign to save the arts. Writers, dancers, designers, musicians and other creatives. I'm sorry, dancers? No, 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 no. This notion, dance, no, sorry. Dancing is something you do yourself. You've had a couple of pints, you're out with your friends, you have a dance. That's great. I'm not against dancing. Step dancing, set dancing, the walls of Limerick before an All-Ireland. Grand. I'll even go as far as 15 minutes of river dance. But dancing as an art that people will put on in a sea, it's such a way. People jumping around, getting making noise. And getting in the way sometimes of very nice music. I mean, I went to see, was it Beauty? Sleeping Beauty. I think it was Sleeping Beauty. Tchaikovsky wrote some lovely music. And then these people come along on a stage, galumph around the place. And it's not that they land silently like they do on the television when they do ballet. No, no. Thump, thump, thump. God, it is the most boring thing anybody ever invented. Three hours of watching people prance around when you can't hear the music. Dance. Jesus. Give money to... to, to uh, would you stop? I didn't realise you felt this strongly about dancing. Well, I don't. I just don't really like dance as an art form. But as I say, no, I'm nothing against a good step dancer down at, at the flat. But listen, Gary, the arts are the books you're reading, the TV shows you're watching, the music you're listening to, the artworks you are fascinated with. Now, I'll put it to you, Gary, the books that you're reading, 
don't need anybody to subsidise them. The TV shows you are watching are profitable. The music you're listening to, similarly. And the artworks, Gary. How many artworks commissioned in the last 50 years are you fascinated by? Or not commissioned in the last 50 years, but executed, created in the last 50 years? Well, I've got, as I said, I've got some fairly good ones done myself. Are you fascinated with them? You know, as a patron of the arts, Michael, I think it's important that I give back to other people more than I'd be fascinated with the works myself. Do you think it's important that other people be forced against their will to give money to the arts also? Because part of this, this, this is just one article, but there have been several talking about the crisis of the arts. And deep in the heart of all of it is the assumption that without government and government money, which is tax money, which is your money, Gary, the arts wouldn't exist. Yeah, historically that hasn't really been the case. There has a, in fact, some of the very high points of our production have been entirely privately done. Well, surely the whole point of the artist is he should starve in a garret. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? I mean, that's where most of the good art came from. You can't really starve nowadays, though. Even if you're in poverty, you can still afford food for the most part. Yeah, but you could get whatever the modern equivalent of TB would be. I mean, these people probably wouldn't even lose any weight. <laughs> they wouldn't with their your tiny hand is frozen. I think poets would write poetry. And if you wouldn't if you didn't write poetry because the government wasn't giving you a subsidy, well I'm sorry, you're not a fucking poet. I think writers novelists would write novels, musicians would write music, painters would paint, but they wouldn't paint or create or sculpt in order to fit in to what was, they felt, the agreed speck to get a government job. They would either paint what they wanted to, or they would respond to what the market was telling and people would willing to, would willing to willingly pay money for. One of the most damaging things about the subsidisation of art, subsidising art, is it, it creates this terrible con- agreement on what you're going to do and it appoints these commissars who who decide, because they're the ones shelling out the money, what will be done and what will not be done. I, I, I think there is an argument for state funding of particular types of high culture that both serve an actual civic or cultural purpose and are simply non-financially viable. For example? Let's say someone wanted to recreate traditional Celtic music. or to translate ancient Celtic poems. I might say, okay, yeah, that that I could go with. I can see kind of the idea of subsidising the Abbey in that we have decided to make that a kind of a national icon. If I'd like them to do more stuff rather than have one stage dark every every day if they're going to get the, the money. But after that, plastic arts in Ireland? No. I think that this is a wonderful opportunity to say to artists, you know what, we value you so much, we're going to give you your freedom back. Yeah, I think the problem there might be that many of these people realise that they're not valued. Maybe, Gary, that's because they're not valuable. 
It's because they're not good. What is the Irish poetry group called? Is it as no? You're the Ace Donna. Ace Donna is not the poetry group so much. Ace Donna is the Ace Donna, the high wise people. You could they're people of arty. They could be poets. They could be, I think, painters, novelists. They could be anything really, and they get a sub. You get, it's not big money, but it's it's a few quid. Like they gave it to what's his name, Francis Stewart, is. The most controversial one because Francis Stewart was apparently a bit of a Nazi. And you know the way people are about Nazis these days. Was he a good artist? He could write, yeah, he could write. Well, I mean, that puts him up above a lot of them. <laughs> well, yeah. To be fair, I take, if we're talking about artists, I'll take the functional Nazi artist over the average member. Ah, the, the problem with the function, most Nazi artists were just dreadful. Lenny Reifenstahl is the great exception. Lenny Reifenstahl is a, is a, is a great artist. Most Ital- most Nazi art. I mean, if you want to look at it, now if you want to defend totalitarian art, you should to compare and contrast the, the art of Nazi Germany with the art of fascist Italy. I would I would say fascist Italy was well behind Nazi Germany on a lot of it. Ah no. For oh, just giant face of Mussolini staring down. No, no, giant for God's sake! The Nazi, I mean Hitler, all he wanted was bigger, bigger, bigger. These ghastly pastiches of neoclassicism. If you wanted something, you want something proper and big and impressive in a kind of a good old-fashioned fascist way. The Central Station in Milan is fantastic, but also you have artists like De Chirico and Modigliani. And uh, the futurists doing their thing. You've got, you know, you've got real art going on in fascist Italy. The, the Nazis really, it's it's folkish and it's it's the worst form of Victorian art. You know, f- all the the kinder, the blonde, blue eyed kinder, and mummy and daddy around the fire and the glow of the fire and outside, the so, you know the snow and a picture of the Führer up on the mantelpiece no it's ghastly stuff <laughs> it's it's norman rockwell without any of the real sensibility yeah i just i i don't care about the political leanings of artists i truly do not care mostly because i think most of them are horrendously uninformed on politics and in the same way i don't care about the politics homeless people shout at me i just assume you're mad i just care about what you actually produce and if it's not valuable, you should go die you know, in a gutter somewhere. You shouldn't really... It's a very dangerous game to start playing with artists to start looking at their morality or what the, the life of their lives, their lives outside of their art. I mean, Caravaggio, pretty decent painter, very popular in Ireland. Is your, very into tennis. <laughs> yeah, he... he he got annoyed, didn't he, when he didn't, he didn't win. I mean, I that was a man who was passionate about all of his hobbies. I, I the story he murdered a man after a tennis game. I think is what you're referring to. By one story says he skewered his testicle with the rapier. Now that's pretty good going, I think, to be able to identify and skewer the testicle. Apparently, the person he killed was not just a randomer, but a well-known pimp. Oh no, he well, he knew him. He knew him, and and he knew him as a pimp. Caravaggio, well, Caravaggio did lots of things, but was also very devout. By the way, you know, 
people make this mistake that just pe- because people go around sinning all over the place that they're somehow non-believers Caravaggio very devout just very devout um, very devout whoremongerer and murderer yes known for not being able to handle his drink he also got in trouble a couple of times for uh, like digging corpses out so he could use them for uh, models yeah which no real necessity for he, he could have he could have got corpses elsewhere but maybe he was looking for a particular stage of decomposition I don't know. I think I think he was actually looking for a prostitute who had been drowned all oh, right right I would you know that's always a tricky one isn't it when you when that's your do you know why he was looking for a particular prostitute Michael was he I don't Mary Magdalene it was for his piece death of the virgin right so he was looking for a prostitute, I believe, as a joke. So he was digging up dead prostitutes as a joke. See, who had drowned. I'm not sure if he dug them up or he just had a very specific uh, request I had, and had, from, and had, from the city. And had people dig them up. Well, you see, again, it, that's indicative of you. Know, you wouldn't want to go too deep in, into the morality of, of these yeah, people. Yeah, like, this is, this is why you don't talk... Like, You'll ask about an artist and he'll turn out he's into some sort of Gnosticism or something. And then you know, and you can't unknow that. It's like uh, some very unkind person once was asked their opinion of Simone de Beauvoir. And the comment was, Simone de Beauvoir, Sartre's pimp. Which is fair, which is actually incredibly fair. On the plus side... From what we know, she only supplied overage people to Sartre. Which is very responsible. Which is very responsible. Although, I know, I, I can't say we know that Sartre definitely enjoyed underage girls. He did sign a couple of letters saying it shouldn't be illegal, though. But then again, we've I'm, often I'm, talked I'm, about how my, things my, shouldn't be illegal. My point was, was more that it's uh, a comment about what she did in her private life rather than saying Simone de Beauvoir, author of The Second Sex. Hugely important, influential text of feminism in the 20th century. So, anyway. No, but it's it's a great thing about philosophers. You should always learn about their personal lives. And it gives you an idea of the worth of their philosophy, the degree to which they adhered about it. So, you know, you take Kant, and Kant is like, well, you know, universality and the brotherhood of man, and then he... People leave out the next part where he just sort of looked around and went, but fuck those Jews, right? So, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then Simone de Beauvoir talking very feminist and very great, effectively a pimp. This, this is such a... Spent her free time trawling students to feed to Sartre. But Camus, all round good guy. Good guy. Didn't sign any of those letters. Didn't sign any of the letters. And uh, solid in goals. Solid in yeah. sol- Nietzsche loved horses. <laughs> My favourite comment of Nietzsche, I've told you before, Bertram Russell, uh, who wrote uh, The History of Western Philosophy, not very not a great book, but an entertaining book and well written. Russell once, uh, he, somebody quoted Nietzsche at Russell, he said, Nietzsche famously said, When you go to woman, Bring your whip, which Russell said yes, and for all of his life he carefully avoided ever going near any women, 
because he knew bloody well that after five minutes in his company, they got the whip off him and would be beating him well. <laughs> Although there was a weird, there was a weird relationship triangle between him and Freud. They they vied for the same woman, and then Freud apparently wrote the book on narcissism about her. That's a bit vindictive. Anyway, as this this is so much fun, it could go on forever. So to avoid that happy accident, I think we'll call it. We'll call it, uh, We'll draw a veil over this and call it a day. We will be back on Sunday with our Sunday miscellany. Our always happy trawl through the big stories of the week and of the day, and looking forward into. I like the I like the idea of saying Sunday miscellany because it it suggests that the rest of them are not miscellanies. Yes, indeed, they are targeted, thought out, carefully planned, and, and precise, segmented, laser-like analysis of a particular thing which is causing his concern of the day. You see, which is where Sunday miscellany is it's a more relaxed, more fun time kind of experience to have with your It is a stroll to the sprint you have just experienced. Exactly. And we will uh we will be on that Sunday, barring accidents. Until then, have a good weekend and goodbye. All the best. <laughs>